10, verses 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call sorry? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Welcome uh, to all of you uh, this afternoon. Uh, to those of you that are, are, are new, a special welcome to you. Uh, I know we have a few new people tuning in uh, on the live stream right now as well. Uh, we are in doing part number two uh, in our teaching series that we're calling the hard sayings of Jesus. And we're calling them the hard sayings of Jesus because what we're going through are some of the more difficult uh, teachings that Jesus taught. And some of those teachings are difficult because they're hard to understand. Some of those are difficult because they're hard to, to not only comprehend, but to obey, to swallow. And oftentimes, it's a little bit of both, right? And so what I'm doing uh, this afternoon is I'm sneaking in two hard sayings in this passage of Scripture. One of them confronts our beliefs about what it means to be good. The other confronts what we think about wealth and riches, Jesus encounters a man who's both morally upright and extremely wealthy, but he's going to take everything that we've heard about those things, being morally upright and being wealthy, our common understanding and posture that we have towards those things, and he's going to kind of turn them on its head, going to sort of turn them inside out. Uh, so let me pray, uh, and then we'll get started. You know what? I had to glare in my glasses so I didn't notice. Lieutenant Runnels is in the house. Welcome back, dude. <laughs> Thank you for serving our country. Uh, we've missed you, bro, so it's good to see you again. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have, we have as your people uh, to study it, to read it, to feast on it, and to worship our King Jesus on this day, the Lord's day, and every day. God, I pray that as we work through a difficult text, that you confront us, that you would challenge us, that you would help us to maybe not take ourselves too seriously, but take you, your word, and the gospel of grace seriously. We can only do this by your help, and so we ask, Lord, 
that you would help us in these ways. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We got a lot to work with through, so I'll just go ahead and jump right into it. Point number one, out of Mark 10, beginning in verse 17, I want you to see that you're not as good as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. Read those two verses with me, verse 17 and 18. It says, and as he, this is Jesus, as Jesus was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. We know from other passages uh, or other gospel accounts that this man was young, he was rich, and he was an influencer of sorts. Uh, Your Bible might say, uh, have a heading there calling him the rich young ruler. And so it says that this rich young ruler, this man, ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Only God can be called good. So quick note, to me, this is one of those instances that kind of proves that Jesus has a sense of humor, right? Because people didn't quite realize back then when he was speaking that Jesus was actually God in the flesh, So when he says, you really think I'm good? God alone is truly good. You can almost hear like Ron Howard's narrator voice going, but Jesus knew he was good. (laughs) After all, he's God. The other point that Jesus is making by saying God alone is truly good is to sort of take a jab at everything that we've ever heard uh, about what it means to be good from culture. Jesus is going to turn the common understanding that we tend to have of moral goodness and turn it on its head. He says, beginning in verse 19, you know the commandments. He tells this guy, look, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man says to Jesus, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And so here Jesus, he lists all the ten, he starts listing out the ten commandments. And this guy, as he hears those Jesus going through this list, he's familiar with it. Right? We know he has a Jewish background. And so he knew the Old Testament. He was acquainted with these ten commandments. He's the kind of guy that people, his contemporaries, would consider a great candidate for the kingdom of God. People will consider him a great candidate for eternal life. And so this dude, he responds to Jesus and says, I've kept the commandments since I was a small boy. I respect people. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I treat others well. He starts offering to Jesus his resume. And his resume is actually pretty impressive. It's commendable. This guy deserves a gold star. He deserves the respect and affection of others. But to Jesus' credit, Jesus wants to push past that and get to the real condition of this man's heart. That it's not just about living this outwardly good life. And look, what Jesus does here, what he's revealing here, it pushes against what our culture teaches about moral goodness. You see, the popular belief in in that age is the same as the popular belief in our age, which is that your religion is not as important as long as you live a good life. That what you believe doesn't matter as much as what you do. You've heard that before, right? 
Like people will say things like, hey, everyone's got their beliefs. You've got yours, I've got mine. What matters is that we just live a good life and treat others decently. But Jesus is, is ready here to destroy that mentality. Look at verse 21 and 22. It says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away. The rich young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now I want you to notice in verse 21 that Jesus destroying this mentality was not out of malice, but out of love. It says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. In the original language, the sense that we get is that he loved him with like just, just this painstaking love. It's like his heart, Jesus' heart went out to this guy. And it's out of his heart going out for this guy. It's out of this love that Jesus points out the one thing that this young man was holding on to and he was unwilling to give up. It's out of that love that Jesus points to this one thing this young man was holding on to that was keeping him from the kingdom of God. The man asks, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, all right, you think you're good? You think you're obedient? I mean, the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus gives an example that kind of encapsulates all of that, and he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, I think there's two common mistakes or errors that we can make when it comes to the types of commands that we read in this passage. The one mistake we can make is to sort of universalize them. That's when we, we're, that's when we start thinking that, you know, every follower of Jesus has to take what we have and give it to the poor. Take all that we have and give it to the poor. But we know that that's not Jesus's posture or his teaching on this because this is the only guy that Jesus encounters in all the Gospels that receives this answer from Jesus. Now, the other area, or error rather, is because we know that, we then minimize commands like this. We say, well, you know, since Jesus didn't say this to everyone, it probably doesn't apply to me. But man, I want you, I want you to consider this is God's inspired word. It's his inerrant, infallible word. And it's useful to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to challenge us. And perhaps this verse is intended to challenge you this afternoon. I think it's only people that would actually find comfort in this command, thinking it could never apply to them, are probably the kind of people that he would say this to. But if this story teaches us anything, it's that sometimes Jesus does call people to this type of radical surrender. This command could be given to any one of us. And so how does this guy respond? It says he walks away sad. Because that wasn't worth it to him. Selling all his stuff and giving it to the birth, it wasn't worth it to him. 
You see, Jesus here, by asking this question, by responding to this guy in this way, by letting the man walk away in disappointment, I think Jesus is teaching the true meaning of moral goodness to us and to him in a very pastoral way, in a very loving way. Jesus is exposing that if you dig deep down enough, none of us is righteous enough to stand before God. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, in other words, if you, O Lord, should mark our sins, if you should keep track of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, none of us will stand a chance. What about in the New Testament in Romans 3, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, it's not that we should presume that we're good enough. It's that we should presume that how good we are is probably too good. And that we're, we're probably dealing with more unrighteousness, more sin, more rebellion against God in our hearts than we ever care to admit. Jesus is revealing here, look, you're not as good as you think you are. Look, that's what sin does. That's what total depravity does. It means that sin taints everything. Even our ability to see how sinful we are is warped by our sinful nature. A lot of us come thinking of Christianity as sort of like this sliding scale between the good that we do and the bad that we do. And if we do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, then hey, we've got to be good with God, right? Like if I'm respected by people, if I lead my family in prayers before meals, if I never cheat a client, then it doesn't matter that I'm getting drunk on the weekend or getting high with my friends. If people around me see me as respectable, it doesn't matter what websites I visit when I'm alone or what thoughts I entertain in my head. Or maybe it's even more hidden than that. Maybe it's just a matter of heart. Hey, if people think I'm nice and agreeable, it really doesn't matter that I'm holding bitterness in my heart. You can look at people who look like their whole lives are together on the outside, but on the inside, they know better. I think that you know things about your own heart that no one else does. Consider that God knows even more. God knows even more, and he knows the things that we are holding on to that keep us from truly knowing him and living for him. The very act of us trying to hold on to those things is an act of rebellion that we need to do away with, that we need to repent of. And so we're not as good as we think we are. The other point that Jesus is getting at in this passage is that you're not as rich as you think you are. Number two, you're not as rich as you think you are. Now, I know some of you are thinking like, oh, I'm not rich, right? <laughs> I'm not rich. Like, I'm struggling to pay the bills. Look, I am too. 
right? Like, I don't want to demean or guilt trip anyone here. Like, that's not my heart. I understand that there are many of us in this room who have real financial struggles and issues that are difficult and hard to deal with. And if that's you, if if that's you listening or you're tuning in and listening, could I just ask you to consider within the grand scope of things that the very fact you live where you live puts you in a very privileged class of people. I think sometimes we look at other parts of the world and think, man, it's kind of weird that they live that way. You know, it's kind of weird that they, that they live with so little. But I think that they would look at us and say, no, it's weird that you live that way. Like some of you are thinking this afternoon, it's kind of weird that our pastor's wearing a beanie this afternoon. Well, I think it's weird that you're not. I had a really... Kind of long story. I didn't have enough time to do my hair. (laughs) We get into this way of thinking where we see others as strange and our reality as normal. Look, most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Think about that. Most of the world lives on less than $2 a day. So by the time tomorrow morning that you've bought your first coffee of the day, you've already spent more than what the average person on the whole planet makes in an entire day. And again, look, I'm not trying to guilt trip us. I'm not trying to diminish our real financial problems that we deal with. I'm not trying to lay on the guilt. But what Jesus says speaks to the heart of our unique culture that we find ourselves in. That we are actually at a spiritual disadvantage by the sheer virtue of where we find ourselves in. We're at a spiritual disadvantage because we are comparatively rich. Even the person who doesn't see themselves as rich, but places their hope and comfort in having their finances together, you're at a disadvantage spiritually. And so it says in verse 23 that Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They're amazed because they're thinking like, man, the people that have a bunch of stuff, like that's where it's at. That's where it's at. But Jesus said to them again, no, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel, pretty big animal, to go through the eye of a needle, pretty small hole, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Did you know that we live not only one of the richest, but one of the safest communities in the world? I looked it up yesterday, and this list of top safest cities in the world, according to like neighborhood watch or something, or search or something like that, uh, in, 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 in the nation, RSM, Lake Forest, and Elisio Viejo are all in the top 100. Like we're the only county in, in all of America that has three cities in the top 100. And, and, and the surrounding communities in the Saddleback Valley are, are, are up on the list too. The average household income in RSM is more than double the average of the nation. 
Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Consider this afternoon, who do you think are the hardest people to reach? This passage would lead us to think the people in our cities. Maybe some of us in this room. We're at a serious spiritual disadvantage here. See, this rich young man, he was part of the upper, upper middle class too, just like us. And Jesus says to him, give away what you have, and he couldn't do it. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know it's, I know it's really hard. I know it's really hard. It's hard because you think your riches are worth something that truly lasts. But it'd be easier to push a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Look, I recently turned 37. I've been a Christian for the last almost 20 years. And I've studied this passage a lot of times, again and again. And I feel like I just recently started to get it. You see, when Jesus says it's hard... For the rich to enter the kingdom of God, what he's saying is that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I'm sure of it now. (laughs) You see, sometimes we dig in when you kind of parse apart a passage of scripture so much that we start to miss what's plainly being said to us. It's hard for people in our position, our cultural position, to get into the kingdom. We're confronted with that this afternoon. But why is that? Why is it that it's hard? You see, some of us, we only like the teachings of Jesus that sort of reinforce our way of living, right? We want to brush aside the hard sayings and say, you know, well, the version of Christianity that I like is like the morally subjective kind. The all grace and acceptance kind. The middle class conservative kind. The I don't have to give to the church kind. See, that's, that's where we need to sort of pause when we start talking like that. Because that's when we start to subtly give into the temptation to take the real Jesus of the Bible and sort of twist him into this version that we're more comfortable with. And we create this nice, neutered, suburban, middle-class version of Jesus who doesn't mind our materialism, who would never call us to give up our comfort, our time, our money, our stuff. But do we realize what we're doing when we go there? When we go there, what we're doing is we're molding and fashioning a Jesus into our image. And we're making him into someone who just looks and thinks just like us. Before we realize it, we're in like a real danger. We're in a real danger. And then the Jesus that we're singing to in church when we come on Sundays is the one we've created in our image and not the Jesus we find in the scriptures. We worship ourselves and start calling it Christianity. When it comes to your material riches, are you looking to Jesus to to guide your life, to give you advice on your life? 
or are you looking for him to have sole leadership over your life? Do you view him as a therapist who makes you feel better when you need him to? Or as the Lord that you surrender everything to? You see, I think some of us, we want to tune parts of the sermon out when it gets like this. And I get that. But look, if what I'm saying doesn't come from the Bible, then by all means tune me out. But if what I'm saying does come from the Bible, then please, please receive it with the love that it's intended to be received with. Jesus, he calls this guy out in love. It says he looked at him and, and he loved him. And when Jesus explains to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom, verse 26, it says, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? Because again, in their culture, those who had resources, those who had money, they were like the it guys. They were the it women. They were the ones who had it going for them. How could God not accept these people that we respect so much. And so verse 27, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What he's saying is the kind of surrender, the kind of obedience that the gospel calls us to is not natural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It can only come from God. And that is the primary point of this passage. Some of us, we place our hope in our morality, how good we are. Others of us, we place our hope in our stuff or in our status before others. But the primary point that Jesus wants to get across to this guy and through the inspired scriptures, the point that he wants to get across to us this afternoon is that we need to place all of our hope, all of our hope on Jesus. We need new hearts. We need to be born again. Nothing the Bible calls us to comes to us naturally. When God opens a person's eyes to the gospel and to who Jesus is, man, it changes everything. It changes everything for you. God opens our eyes to the reality that we've all rebelled against a holy, perfect, good, just, and all-satisfying God, a God who created us, where the only real satisfaction we can find is by resting in he who made us. And we all deserve eternal punishment for that rebellion we've engaged in against him. And we see that rebellion, and yet we know, we know that God loves us and made a way for us to be saved and to bring us back into relationship with him. And when we realize this love, when we realize just the depths of God's love for us, we run from our sin. We run from our sin and, and our love for the things of the world that the world offers us. And we begin to announce our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And then God forgives us of our sin, <coughs> fills us with his spirit, and gives us a new heart, the heart of Jesus.
<coughs> and so <clears throat> when we give, <clears throat> when we give away our resources, when we surrender our money, it's not out of guilt. It's not out of manipulation that drives us, but grace. Grace that overflows because we now have the heart of Jesus and so we want to give the way that he's given to us. If you claim to follow Jesus, but you don't want to give him your full self, you might be what we call a nominal Christian. In other words, you're a Christian by name only. Another term for this is a lukewarm Christian, which leads us into our third point. Lukewarm Christianity is no Christianity at all. Lukewarm Christianity is no Christianity at all. We're going to skip just for a couple minutes to a different book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is writing these letters to seven different churches. One of those churches is this church in Laodicea. And it's crazy how similar Laodicea sounds to middle-class suburbia that we find ourselves in. I want you to look at me from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, And to the angel or messenger of the church in Laodicea, write these words, the words of Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, I wish that you would be either cold or hot, but you're not. In other words, he's saying, look, it's best to be on fire for Jesus, but if you're not going to be on fire for him, it almost would be better if you just hated him altogether, if you didn't associate with him at all. He calls this being lukewarm. And he says that they're lukewarm because of how rich and comfortable they are. Look at verse 16. It says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus saying, talking. He's like, because you're so lukewarm, you're not hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Don't miss this. You see, the church that Jesus was reciting this to was all laid back in their relationship with the Lord because they didn't feel their true dependence on him. No one in Laodicea was praying, give us today our daily bread. How many times do we pray Give us today our daily bread and mean it. When was the last time you prayed, God, feed us today? Man, I've been in parts of the world, on the other side of the world, and prayed with people before meals who literally would not have the meal that we were serving them uh, if if, if we weren't there to give it to them. And they prayed, God, feed us today. Thank you for this food. When they prayed those prayers, when they prayed, give us today our daily bread, 
tears would stream down the faces of these saints because they truly meant it. You see, we live in a place where we don't think like we need God for our food. We don't think we need God for our homes, for our daily needs. And what this does is it starts to subtly build up this false sense of security. Like no one looks at people in South Orange County and thinks they're needy. These people are needy. They need help. But you know who does? God does. God does. He peers over the peaks of the Saddleback Mountains, looks into the valley at the tens of thousands of people that live here comfortably, independent. And he says, those are the needy ones. Those are the ones at a spiritual disadvantage here. Those are the ones that are impossible to save without my supernatural power because they're so not on fire, they're lukewarm. Even the Christians, the self-professing Christians in this valley are lukewarm. And so ask, I know like being on fire for God, that that's like a cheesy phrase in our minds, but I want you to consider that phrase in light of what Jesus is saying in Revelation 3 and ask, are you truly on fire for God right now? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you on fire for God or would, could you be described as what Jesus says, lukewarm? I think many of us in this room, many of us tuning in, hear things like this and we just have to admit that we're lukewarm. We're confronted by that and we're like, yeah, you know, like, I think I struggle with that. I think I struggle with lukewarmness. But what's scary is that some of you are okay with that. Some of us are okay with not being on fire. And that's like the epitome of American Christianity. We say, look, Christianity, it's good for raising my kids. It's good for having morals in my life. And I, yeah, I do think I need more money and, and more stuff, but I think I have enough of God in my life right now. I don't think I, have any more, I need any more of him. You're lukewarm and you're comfortable with that. You're comfortable with that. Do you know how crazy that sounds? Like what does God say happens to the lukewarm Christian in Revelation 3? The Christian who's nominal, Christian in name only. Jesus says he spits you out. And people ask, like, can I be lukewarm and still be saved? I mean, like, what do you think? What did Jesus say to the rich young man? What does it say in, in Revelation 3? I mean, read it again. He says, look, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For, I, for you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are actually wretched. Pitiable, poor, blind, and spiritually naked. Are these the kind of words that are given to a believer? 
Are these the kind of words that are given to a true follower of Christ? And look, man, just to be clear, this is not about works-based Christianity, all right? This is not about works-based religion. It's not about shaming you into giving more stuff. Just an example, like if you're helping somebody who can't handle strong drink, maybe tell them to stay out of the bar for a while, right? Maybe you don't go to those parties for a while. Like what we're talking about here is not works-based religion. It's about, hey, look, are we living with integrity in light of the grace that we've received? You already know God's grace. You've already accepted it. You know that he loves you and accepts you based on Christ's merit and not your own. But is your life reflecting the truth of that? And do you care if it does? Look, in the gospel, in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, we receive God. We get God. And so if you're okay with being lukewarm, like you're telling me that you're looking at the maker of all things and you're on this tiny little dot of a planet floating in in the ever-expanding universe, looking at your little house and your little cars and your vacation spot going, I don't know what I should choose, God or this stuff. God says, that makes me want to gag. That makes me want to gag. I mean, there's not even a real choice there. Look, we keep returning to that stuff, thinking it will satisfy the deep yearnings of our soul, but it never does, does it? And yet we keep returning to it. When I was a kid, my family, we used to... um, uh, we used to, to go out for, for sushi, and um, me and my cousins, we'd play this trick on each other where um, if anyone, one of us, like, uh, ordered green tea ice cream, uh, if that person after left the table, we sneak a little bit of wasabi into that green tea ice cream, like right where the spoon mark was. So the next time they take, they take a bite, instead of getting green tea, tea ice, cream, ice cream, I can't speak, uh, they just get flooded with like fire in their mouth, right? Uh, and they realize like, oh, this is not what I wanted, right? This is, this is not what I was going for. Instead of ice cream, you get wasabi. You see, there's no comparison between the counterfeit saviors that the world offers us and the real one. And look, A Christian who's not lukewarm, a Christian who's on fire for Christ knows this. An on fire Christian is a Christian who says, look, if you want the world from me, take the world. Take the world as long as I get Jesus. Take the world and give me Jesus. I don't want anything that this world has to offer me if it's going to keep me from more of Jesus. And so I'll give it up. I'll lay it down. Jesus, if you're saying that the one thing, the one thing that I'm lacking, the one thing keeping me from the maker of the universe, the one thing keeping me 
from the eternal kingdom of God, from eternal riches and blessings that never fade, that never grow rusty, that always last. If you're saying the one thing that I have to do is give up all my worldly stuff, then take it. But this rich young man walked away sad and disappointing because he was unwilling to do that. He asked for the kingdom. He asked for eternal life. But his greater treasure were his possessions. Which leads us to our last and final point, that Jesus is our truest and our greatest treasure. Jesus is our truest and greatest treasure. Verse 28, it says, Peter began to say to him, Peter said to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left their house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands who's left all those things for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. To sum it up, don't, don't miss what he's saying. Like, we've walked through some crazy countercultural ideas about money and Christianity. But don't miss this key point. The key to on fire Christianity is realizing that this world is not our home. And that anything this world has to offer us is not our greatest treasure. Jesus is. I want you to imagine that if you were, let's say for work, like you had to travel to somewhere in Europe, like pick your favorite spot. Let's just say Portugal, right? You were, to, you were assigned to live and stay in Portugal, and um, you, you, were given, you, were, you were paid a wage while you were there, but the only rule was that you couldn't take anything that you bought there back home with you, all right? So you're there for a month. What are you going to do with the wages you earn? Would you take the money would you go out and buy like all this expensive furniture for your flat in Portugal? Would you buy all this expensive furniture, this like cool artwork to put up on your wall? Like, no, you probably wouldn't. Why is that? It's because your time there is short. You would want to take anything that you earn and invest it in your true home. Where are you going to go back to? You'd want to send it on ahead. You see, some of us, the way that we live and the things that we invest our time, our resources, our energy into, are going into things that are here today and will be gone tomorrow. And the eternal kingdom that always lasts, that always shines, that never ends, We're being kept from it because of how much we love these things that won't last. See, my concern is that some will see themselves as lukewarm 
be convicted by it, but then just move on back to business as usual. But again, think about the imagery that Jesus uses here. Spit out from his mouth. Like a real talk here. Like if that's you, if that's you, if you think you might be lukewarm in your faith, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to spit you out, like what else is there for you to think about today? What else is there for you to think about this week? There's nothing more important you have to do until you figure out how to not be lukewarm. The good news we see in Revelation 3, verse 19, when Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus is saying, look, those that I love, I'm going to challenge. I'm going to reprove. I'm going to discipline. So please hear these words. Be zealous, be passionate, and repent. Come back to me. Look, if you're here this afternoon and you're feeling convicted, that verse, verse 19, when Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove, man, I want you to take that sense of conviction and recognize that that's not God beating you up. That's God expressing love to you. You know why Jesus confronts us on this? It's because he loves us. He looks at us, at our spiritual neediness, and he loves us. He doesn't want you to get spit out. And look, giving him your everything is not easy. Like, I know that. But I have this, like, haunting fear that some of the people that call King's Cross Church their home church are going to get spit out. I think about that. Sometimes it keeps me up at night, causes me anxiety. When we read the scriptures, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like a guy who's totally sold out. He could have the cushiest life on the block. He could have the cushiest life in the nation. But then he finds out about this treasure that's hidden in a field that's worth a million times more than he has. And it's just common sense to him. He's like, I'm going to sell everything that I have. Buy that plot of land because that treasure is my truer treasure. That treasure is my greatest treasure. Jesus says the kingdom of God is just like that. Is that kind of passion for the kingdom what we have in this room? And look, it's not going to be easy to say no to things that we've loved for so long. It might not be easy at first, but are you willing to just ask God for help with that? Are you willing to get the saints, to get your local church family around you, confess your sins before them, and have them help you to, to press in through that? I don't, I don't want you to walk away from this sermon as Chris is up there just judging us. 
Like, no, I want you to see from the scriptures, not from me, from the scriptures, that, hey, maybe I'm lukewarm. And look, I have things to confess too. Sometimes I fear I'm lukewarm in my own faith. There are things that I find myself caring about more than God. Just like anyone else, I, I, I care more about my personal comfort, being accepted by others, being accepted by some of you. You think I'm oblivious to the allure of culture? I feel it. I get sucked in. I get attached. But God is saying to us, look, look, guys, because I love you, because I love you, I need you to know that, that these things are not your world. So come to me. Repent. Come to me. Let me help. This isn't what you were made for. That stuff will be gone tomorrow. But I'll be here till the end of days. So are we willing to ask this afternoon, God, am I lukewarm? Do I want your will? We have to be right about how we answer that. Can you pray with integrity? God, I would give up anything for you. If you would have to take everything else away from me just so that I could finally get it, then just do it. Take it from me. Even if it's my family, take it from me just so I could get it. I mean, we're talking about God here. Looking back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Or sorry, this is actually Revelation chapter 3. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying, look, the reason that I'm being harsh like this, the reason I'm harping on this is because I love you. I'm knocking on that door. I'm knocking on that door. You need to know that I'm greater. Let me in. In me are greater riches than all your stuff. There's this lukewarm road that is broad and leads to destruction, but there are few who find this narrow road that leads to eternal life. And with my help, with the Spirit's help, you can overcome the flow of culture and say, no, I'm not going down the broad road. I see the greater treasure. And I'm sticking with Jesus. Again, family, I'm not here to accuse you. Take time to just honestly consider this. Maybe you're the kind of person where you hear this, your defenses go up, and you think, hey, you know, just because I serve in a lukewarm way and because I prioritize church in a lukewarm way and give in a lukewarm way, it doesn't mean that I'm actually lukewarm. All right. Can you stand before the throne of God and say that with integrity, without trembling? In a moment, 
We're going to respond through worship and communion. In the response time, during the songs and during communion time, as you're holding the bread, which signifies the body of Jesus broken for us. And when you hold the cup, which is the blood of Jesus spilt for us, when you consider the spiritual presence right here in this room of Christ our Lord, can you ask him to reveal to you where perhaps you've been lukewarm? Would you pray, God, would you, could you give me strength in these areas of being lukewarm? Do whatever it takes to get me on fire for you. And look, I know that that's a scary prayer. But man, do you want to pray that? Do you want to be on fire for Christ? Do you see that the treasure that is found in Christ is greater than anything else? He's given his life. And we forsake him. He's the one who delivered us, yet we reject him. We turn to our idols, these broken cisterns, and yet we still hunger for true joy and satisfaction. We yearn to be made whole, but all we see is a world that groans along with our hunger to be satisfied. That's why Jesus came. He came to satisfy that hunger. He came to quench that thirst, to make all things new. If we want salvation, if we want lasting joy, then we must seek it from somewhere or from someone who is truly other than us, who is truly other than this world. Salvation can only come from someone who is cosmologically other than us and transcendent in every way. The good news is that this Savior is real. His name is Jesus. And you don't have to pursue him because he's pursued you. The question is, will you let him change everything? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.